Welcome to the Mental Podcast, where we talk about mental health from a holistic perspective. I'm your host, Jesse Zookman, and on the show today, we have Mary Angela Abeo. Mary Angela is a photographer who has this amazing portrait series called Faces of Fortitude, which I was lucky enough to be a part of last year. She photographs people who have been touched by suicide in some way, whether that's someone who had made an attempt themselves or someone who had lost a loved one to suicide. And alongside of her portrait, she tells the story of her subjects um, in their own words. You can see these portraits over uh, at Faces of Fortitude on Instagram. Um, so you can see uh, you know, exactly what we're talking about, which might be helpful for the conversation. Um, but the reason that I really got excited about uh, having Mary Angela on the show is because we talk so much about uh, you know, smashing stigma and changing stigma in the mental health community, but we don't really talk about what it really looks like in action to tell our own narratives and to tell those narratives from, from an empowering place, from a real place, to let the world know what our healing paths really look like, and to also have autonomy over our own stories. And I think Mary Angela's work does so much in that regard that, you know, I know, you know, very often we talk about, you know, holistic remedies and supplements and meditation and working out on this podcast. Well, I think, you know, defining our own narratives is just as important as all of that. Um, because if you can tell the story of yourself and your fellow patients from a place of, uh, of authenticity and, and from a place of real empowerment, I think that helps everybody heal and helps uh, just society in general help us heal and help each other heal. And I just think it's, I just think it's awesome. So with that said, if you find the conversation valuable, please consider supporting us over at mentalhealthmedia.org where you can make a tax deductible donation and sign up for all of our socials and our mailing list. As always, do not change any part of your treatment plan or delay in getting care based on any content on the podcast or on mentalhealthmedia.org. Nothing on the podcast is intended to be medical advice. Nothing is intended to be medical care. If you have any questions about mental health or any mental health treatment, please consult your mental health professional. And um, if it's not obvious, just from the intro, this is at times a very tough um, podcast. So if you're someone, if you're not feeling great and um, you, you know, this is not the time for you to be listening to a conversation um, about some explicit details around stories of suicide, this might not be the podcast for you to listen to right now. You can always come back. You can always save it. We're not going anywhere, but make sure you're in a good place because this could be some challenging content depending on where you are at. And with that, I bring you Mary Angela Abeo. Mary Angela, tell us a little bit uh, about your project, uh, Faces of Fortitude. Faces of Fortitude is a portrait project surrounded around people that have been touched in some way by suicide. So I started originally because of my own personal battles with suicide attempt and then losing my brother 11 years ago and basically started something to try to heal myself and it's grown into something quite bigger. What, what made you want to do photography um, 
in order to heal trauma? What what made that connection for you? Well, I had a I worked at a, a creative educational company, and there was a photographer that came and did a lecture, and basically did a talk about taking trauma and turning it into something that can help yourself, something that can help other people. She was a wounded war vet from Afghanistan, who basically was now injured with a traumatic brain injury, service dog, traveling around the country, taking photos of wounded war vets and telling their stories. And she did this talk about taking something that has hurt us and trying to heal ourselves and healing other people in the process. So I sat there and kind of had this light bulb and said, well, I guess I need to do this. So that's kind of what sparked it. How long ago was that? It was a year at the end of this past October, so a little bit over a year now. Oh, wow. So this is still all kind of fresh. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And it's kind of grown so fast that I didn't didn't expect it to, to have this kind of impact. I guess I should have known, quite honestly, because the safe space is just not there. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. You know, I when I when I realized um, it was taking on a life of its own, it was when people would come in and just burst into tears when they walked in my door, or um, sit down and say, "I've never talked about this with anybody before," or "I I didn't feel safe talking about this in any of my spaces." So it just made me realize why don't people feel safe talking anywhere else? To back up a little bit, you find people who have been affected by suicide in some way, whether that was an attempt that they had themselves or someone they lost or someone else that attempted, and then they come, o- they come in and tell their story. Just tell me, like, really um, illustrate what, what exactly is going on. Yeah, I, I actually, it's probably like a 90-10 percentage right now. I only reach out to about 10% of people asking them to be part of my project. Most of the people reach out to me. They see me on Instagram, they see me on Facebook, and they want to share their story. And then they go through a vetting process, an approval process, because honestly, I have to protect myself and my project and make sure people have self-care in place and all of those things. And then once they're approved, then we set up a session, but I, it, it's mainly people that are connected in some way, but that are on an upswing, if that makes sense. So you don't want to talk to people who are in direct crisis, don't have support. I mean, I think those are strong words, Jesse. <laughs> it's not <laughs> that I don't want to talk to them. It's that I can't. I'm not qualified. Um, it's above my pay grade, and I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to trigger somebody. I don't want to push them past a limit that they're not ready for because my sessions do get emotional with some people. And the worst thing that could happen is somebody goes home and can't get out of the sadness that I sat through. And I don't, I can't have that on my conscience and I can't put people in that position. So at this point I need to vet and have people that are truthfully, honestly working on themselves and that aren't in the need for help and not looking for help because, you know, I can't be that help to them, if that makes sense. And does that happen a lot? Do you, wh- how, what percentage of people do you have to turn away because they don't have the support and they're not working? Very, very little, honestly, because I feel like I've got a rapport enough with people that I can, I can stray conversations before I even get to that point of having to turn them away, if that makes sense. 
Unlike me, who was just, uh, hey, I'm here, <laughs> out, out of the blue. Well, Take but my you picture, were, let's go. You, I was able to do enough Google stalking on you to know that you had done your own work on yourself and done your own homework. And um, I think that's really important is I need to be able to see that people are caring to take care of themselves and that it's not something that they hope is going to fix their life. Sure. Sure. Um, what does a session look like? So someone comes in, they have a story, they're feeling a little, they're in a better place than they were at, at some cathartic moment. Um, yeah. What happens? They, they come in and usually I tell my story first because how am I supposed to ask someone else to become vulnerable if I'm not going to get vulnerable first. So I tell my whole story. I usually base it on the vibe that I'm getting from them as far as how many details I go into because my brother's story is quite graphic and very detailed. Um, And if they're not ready for it, I don't tell them very much. Um, But I do get vulnerable and tell them. And then most of the time that opens people up to be able to share their own truth and their own story. And it's really just a conversation. The camera's on a tripod in the back of the room. I have a remote. After about 20 minutes, you forget it's there. (laughs) If I could get Sony or Canon to um, sponsor me and give me a new camera, you won't hear the shutter anymore, but it's 10 years old. So we hear the shutter currently. (laughs) Let's go, but, Sony. Let's go. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but until then, you know, but yeah, it's just, you know, the photos I like to say are the afterthought. The conversation is really what the the entire meeting is about. And if people are listening at home, you have to just jump on Instagram and look up Faces of Fortitude so you can see just how powerful and emotive these portraits are. So you can really get why um, why we're talking and why this is an important project because so much of it is visual and this is an audio format. So, um, you know, as you're listening along, just flip through these pictures so you can really get what, what is going on here. Yeah, and Instagram is kind of a really great medium for me because um, I don't have very many words to share. It's really all about the faces and um, I share small quotes from my sessions with people that they approve. and. Um, Instagram has just kind of been lovely in the way that it's a really perfect platform for me. I really like how much it's almost like a documentary. You know, I felt like when when we were talking, it was almost like, you know, a a video project. It felt very uh, familiar to me coming from, you know, uh, a video directing background. Um, And you can see that it's almost it's almost like a multimedia um, project because so much of it is narrative in the text and that's so important when you're when you're looking at your work is to also l- read the stories, um, not just look at the pictures, um, because that is just so much, and they really play off of each other in this just an amazing way. Well, and a lot of people, and I get a lot of messages actually from people that will read somebody's story like yours or somebody else's and say, "Wait, wait, I don't." They'll private message me. I don't understand. Who did they lose? Or when did they attempt or how did they do it? And they want these details that society sometimes really focuses on and I don't like it. And so I tend to tell people that's their story to tell, not mine. I'm just here to show you that it can be anybody and that it's touched them in some way. But really the words in my Instagram and the the words that I curate are around my experience, how they made me feel, how they made me see grief differently or trauma differently. Um, like you made me think differently about medication, about process, like, 
um, it's more about the progress and the process of it rather than the gritty details that society just loves. So when you are, you you sit down, you take someone's pictures. I don't know how many you end up with hundreds of pictures. I'm imagining. Yeah, for sure. And then you are trying to tell a story with, you know, you talk to folks for an hour or two hours. And this is something I think a lot about is like, how do you tell, um, a patient story that is also empowering, but also truthful because, you know, you don't want to just create a hero's journey um, if it's not real. Um, but at the same time, you want to show people dignity, you know, with dignity and respect. How do you juggle all of that when you're sitting down to construct these narratives? Yeah, I, I do so much um, work ahead of time so that by the time I sit down, I don't have to juggle it and I don't have to try to look for it or even, or, or even, uh, you know, pull it out of the thin air. I, my vetting process, sometimes I'll, I, I was able to find enough information on you and talk to you enough and you were open enough that you gave me a lot of what I needed. There are people that are on hold with me for months until I can get to know them because I can't just go in cold in a studio and expect to pull what I need. I need to really look into their life and I need to know that um, the right things are there. And I don't necessarily need a hero story, but I do need to see some sort of new life, new hope, new something that, and most of the time suicide does spark that in people if they do survive it or if they lose someone um, to keep going, we all have to find that hope, you know? So is that, is that a common thread you find in all of your stories is that people who have been hurt that deeply and come from that much pain do find ways to cope? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, incredible the level of human spirit uh, awesomeness that I've experienced. <laughs> they truly, I, I hear people's stories. I mean, a woman that was a sex slave and um, basically kidnapped, literally having a foundation for other abused kids now, like, the, the things that these people do to help other people out of their hurt are just bananas. But then it's not just everybody doesn't have to like save the world and create a foundation either. I mean, there's a, a one of my subjects who is depressed and spent years trying to find medication and had like shock therapy treatment and all of these things. And now has finally found the right medication and is happy and has a relationship and has a life. And that's an upswing to me. And what else? Are there any other memorable, you know, ways that people have surprised you and how they've, they figured out how to cope? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, the widows and the mothers that have lost uh, children are pretty mind-blowing to me. Almost all of them having blogs, writing about loss, processing their loss on paper, sharing it with other people that have lost, um, and creating this visual and this kind of documented process of their grief so that, you know, the next person, sadly, that this happens to can Google them or find them and go, oh, this is, this what I'm feeling is not abnormal. This woman felt this too. And I think that's remarkable. That's and, and it's also so good for your healing to be able to process that out in words. 
I think this is, I mean, it's very interesting what you're saying, and this is just such important work because we, we so often, especially like in the online mental health world, you hear smash stigma, you know, break stigma, uh, fight stigma. And, you know, the more people I talk to, the more people like don't really know how to do it or what that even means, um, except for, you know, let's just talk about mental health more and that means less stigma. And it's like, I agree, but it's like that's not – that's not all. That's not. That's not going to do it. That, the, the, you know, the, that work is not completed. And what you're doing is showing narratives of people who have been through suicide and in, or, or suicide attempt, uh, suicide impacting their lives somehow, and showing them not as victims, um, but as people who have adapted in empowering ways. And if hell, if if we could, if we could ha- take that on as a society. Of people that, you know, when we see someone in huge amounts of pain move through it and think, wow, there's somebody who adapted and they were on a wild journey that I can never understand, that yeah. would be some progress. Right. I just, I recently had a young, um, young trans boy message me and was so upset and so heartbroken and had been through a horrendous week between homophobia, transphobia, um, parental uh, neglect and parents just not understanding and friends not being there and losing his job. And all of these things happened. And it was like Friday. And he messaged me and said, Mary Angel, I don't know what to do. I just feel like I'm in such a low place. I'm not suicidal. I'm, I'm not trying to bug you. I just, how do you get out of those spots? Like, when is this going to end? Like, I don't know if I can do this. And I responded to him and I said, dude, you, you, but you've already done it. It's Friday. You survived it. It's huge. Like, give yourself a little bit of credit here. You just survived all this. It sucks. It's shitty. I'm not going to tell you it's not. All of it sucks. But look at this. You're standing here today messaging me. You got through it. That's a powerful that's a powerful message that even, you know, for for myself, I think all of all of us patients who do amazing work, we do not give ourselves enough credit. Never ever. At the least. At the least. And people sit there and they 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 focus on what is going on that's bad, which I get. But I'm also like, okay, let's also focus on the fact that you're standing here and you're able to tell me what you went through. That in itself says that you've survived something. And it inspires me. Maybe you can't see it, but it inspires me. Yeah, and a lot of other folks who were who are looking at your work and people around them, I'm sure. Um, how, how do you find that gender affects folks this person obviously uh you know this was a big part of their struggle yeah it's Um, rough between trans between trans folks men women how do you find you know how do you see people coping in different ways and how are the struggles different i mean first of all i think our society is becoming much more aware and we're becoming much more thoughtful about dealing with gender norms gender biases gender changing um transgender and I'm seeing so much more of it on the mental health side because people are becoming awakened to it. They're trying to deal with it. They're trying to get their families to help them deal with it. So in general, like the trans community and the LGBT community are such a huge percentage of the people that 
contact me. Um, it's just, it's so painful. It's such a painful neglect. Um, and I think that what I see as far as um, statistics in my project, if my project was a little microcosm of the world, um, I have a m way higher majority of women. Um, and But the men are the ones that I see a lot of the tragedies from. So a lot of the losses that people come in that have lost people are men. Um, I just think females in general in society have been taught to be more vocal. Um, and men have been taught to hide their feelings and their sadness a little bit more. It, it, it's been a, a strange week for me just about this topic because, you know, um, certainly it's been part of my journey to start to question gender roles. Um, you know, I was brought up in, you know, a Jewish family that came over that immigrated in the thirties. And it was that very, you know, when all of, you know, the Italians and the Irish and the Jews all kind of came to New York and created, um, in many ways, a very machismo culture. In other ways, I think it's very progressive in being able to express affection and express, um, tenderness, um, perhaps more than other cultures, but there's this like, hey, what you doing? Hey, go fuck yourself. Uh, you know, uh, hey, what, what's that bitch gonna do? You know, just this like terrible sexist yep. stuff that also where people are like, hey, you gotta man up, uh, you know, don't be a pussy, you know, this kind of stuff. Of so just, harmful. The expectation to be able to endure any humiliation, any pain, um, to not complain regardless of how much suffering you're in was and, – and also just to take on so much um, and the expectation of being, you know, invulnerable – was a huge part of why I had a, a breakdown. And I had to really look at what does career mean? What does it mean to be a man um, and and be able to be okay with failure? Um, you know, a lot of those kinds of attitudes and lessons were a big, big part of why I um, ended up really sick and in the mental hospital six times and um, came very close to not being here anymore. Right. And when I... The thing this week that is just shocking to me is that when I talk about that publicly on Twitter, it attracts other men who have who are still bought into those attitudes and they get angry and really? defensive. Just saying like, you know, just challenge not even challenging, but just like talking about the con you know, just having the conversation of wow. You know, maybe maybe we should be vulnerable. Maybe you know, it's it is bizarre, and I don't really know what the answer is. That's so strange, and it's so um, unfortunate because most of those people are probably hoping to cry out and and have their own voice, but um, are covering it with this defensiveness. It sounds like. It's, I feel, I see a lot of people defending their own suffering. Right. You know? And I'm sure, I'm sure I did that at one point too, but I'm like, how do we get through this? Right. How do we get past it to help people? So, so I don't know. That was just my, 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 I've been thinking about gender a lot just from that perspective. Um, 
lately. And I, I know, you know, just so many of these societal expectations are such a big reason of why people want to give up because we cannot do, you know, what society has set out for us in for a lot of folks. And it's incredibly, incredibly painful. Anyway, now now I'm now I'm ranting about this because I've just been thinking about it way too much this Rant week. Away. So I apologize. I'm interviewing you. <laughs> um so what what could you tell me about your story? Is that something you share publicly? Um, I do. I do. Um, you know, I I don't think I did a lot of uh self-searching until I started this project. I mean, I've always known that I had like a troubled past, but you know, they always say when you get to your thirties, you really start to kind of spend more time with yourself. And you know, that's when a lot of people start counseling. That's when they kind of start blaming their parents for things, (laughs) all of that. And so that's kind of my journey right now is, um, at 17, I had my own attempt and it was pretty serious. Um, I went to the hospital, was there for a little bit, and um, it woke me up. It woke me up to how I was letting other people's definition of me and treatment of me define who I was. And because I'm this staunch, spiteful Capricorn, that was the last straw. I I wasn't ever going to let anybody get me to that mental place again um, and started leading my life very differently. But um, I kind of started focusing too much on myself, you know, the self-centered twenties and just didn't really realize that my brother was struggling. And then 11 years ago when he was 26, took his own life. And that kind of sent me into this spiral of why didn't I catch it? And now, um, now I know better that it wasn't something that you can catch. It's not always that easy. And so that's kind of one of the many things I've, I've learned during this whole process is, you know, the questions that we ask ourselves, the things that we try to fix and mend. So yeah, my story is very involved, but also um, has guided me through this. I wouldn't ever wish it on anyone, but I would, you know, it's, it's brought me so much more clarity than I think I would have ha- had otherwise. Tell me a little bit about your brother. My brother was rad. He um, was a Yale grad. Well, he went to Issaquah High School. He was the prom king. He was the class president. He worked for King Five. He had an Emmy. He was an actor. He played the guitar. Brilliant guitar player. One of Jimi Hendrix's local guitar teachers. Old man taught him for several years. Um, he went to Yale, graduated t- from Yale, um, did tons of philanthropy work, l- really, really um, helped the homeless locally a lot. He, But on a very personal level, not on an organizational level, my brother always felt like we could handle society's ills one part at a time. So that was very much him. But, you know, he struggled with demons at a very young age um, when family turmoil started and our dysfunction started as a family. Um, in his teens, you know, we all deal with dysfunctional families. It's just whatever, what level they're at nowadays. <laughs> and, sure. um, well, we'll, go ahead. What was his name? Jimmy. No. Or as he liked people that didn't know him to call him James, it sounded more professional. Um, but I refused. I was never one of those people that would ever do it. He's like, 
sis, it's James. I'm like, no, it's not, bro. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah. And so he lived in the Northwest for most of his schooling and then went off to college to Yale, lived in New York for a while, lived in Atlanta, where he worked for AmeriCorps. And that's where he ended up taking his life. Mm. And do you know what happened? Do you know where he was at? Yeah. I don't know how graphic I can get on this podcast, can I? As much as you're comfortable. Yeah, with. totally. Um, I actually tell the story quite often. It was part of my my grief process when he first died because I didn't want to have trigger words. I didn't want words like window, jumped, suicide to hurt me. So I told the story of his death every day for a year to someone because I had to just get those words out of my head. And now it's, it's helped me quite a bit, I think. Um, so he was working for... AmeriCorps, which is, he was working for a sect called Outward Bound, which is part of AmeriCorps. And uh, it it ironically takes at-risk youth out into the wilderness and hopes that, you know, being out in nature will help them. So he was working at their headquarters in Atlanta and didn't have internet. He was a little bit of a hippy-dippy and um, went, he was, he had plans to come home. This was June end of June. Um, and he went in the office building on a Sunday to use their internet and email us all because he had tickets to come home and he was just really excited to see us and all seemed normal. We got emails that just said, Hey, excited to see you. Got my ticket home, blah, blah, blah. And then we think something in his email set him off. We still don't know what it was to this day. Um, But there was some construction happening in the hallway of this office building. And they had paint cans and construction stuff. And he had gone out into the hallway, brought all the paint cans into the office, used them to splatter the walls. It was like Jackson Pollock when I saw the photos. Um, punched Punched all the screens in of the computers um, and then put his shirt over his head and jumped out the window. And that was it. Even the coroner who didn't know anything about him and his love for superheroes. That's why I have superhero tattoos said it looked like he was trying to fly, not kill himself, which makes sense knowing my brother and knowing some of the demons he'd struggled with and um, schizophrenia in my stepdad's side of the family. He was my half brother Um, so none of it sounded surprising to me, honestly. He died instantly. There was no suffering. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a very like psychotic break according to the coroner. And, um, what were some of the, the demons he was struggling with that you knew about beforehand? Um, You you suspected that he was schizophrenic before that or? Oh, absolutely. You know, he would... We were trying to get him home for a while before he moved to Atlanta. After he graduated from Yale, um, he was living in New York for a while, and he, we were trying to get him to come home, and he wanted to drive home across country, and we thought that was a horrible idea. And he, it didn't matter. He was like, I want to drive across the country. I've always wanted to do it. I'm going to make some stops. It's going to be therapeutic. Great. And so we were like, just keep in touch with us. And at one point he was on a bus in New York and he called me and said, Maria Angela, the 
there's kids on this bus and they're staring at me and they see the darkness inside me. I can hear their voices. And I was like, buddy, you just need to get on a plane. Like I I'm confused why you're on a bus right now. And, you know, he called me when he was in the Midwest and said, guess where I am. And I was like, where are you? Why aren't you home yet? And he said, I'm in the middle of the map. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, you know where the page creases in a map? That's where I am. And I was like, Oh God buddy. So it was a lot like, you know, he loved his guitar. He loved doing music. And at one point he sold a bunch of his stuff to get a ticket to a Prince concert, which looking back, I'm glad he did it. But still, you know, he was doing things that were like so scary to us. Mm-hmm. And, and he didn't have a therapist. I'm imagining no, you know, he was such, point. he was so bright. He was so smart that I think half the time, when we would get red flags, we weren't sure if he was having mental issues or if he was just smarter than us. And it, because he would phrase the things in a way that we thought he was just being super like obtuse or just really, uh, you know, thoroughly eccentric and, and quote books and things. And I, at, I, at one point I was like, we, we all need to get him to talk to somebody. And he would be like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I've got a trip to Peru planned and I'm going to do all this research with all these friends and quote a few books. And then I was like, you're just really smart maybe. And so it was so hard for us to tell because oftentimes with schizophrenics, they'll do these resets where it's like every six months, he would go on a trip every six months, right when we started getting an inkling that something was happening, he would go on a trip and then he'd come back refreshed and great. And we would be like, Oh, well, hmm, maybe he's fine, you know? And so that's kind of happened over and over. You even did, you know, reached out to him and said, we need to get help. And I mean, what, what the hell do you do? Yeah, no, we had a family meeting at one point. Um, right before he went to Peru, which was his last big trip and said, we need to get them all. We need to get them together. And it was me and my aunts and my dad and my sister. And we all had stories that we hadn't shared with each other about things that he had done that were huge red flags. And I remember sitting around this room going, why on earth are we not communicating about this? All of these stories were startling were like worry inducing were not normal and we weren't talking to each other because mental health just isn't talked about and i remember thinking what the fuck is our problem like why aren't we talking about this and that was a great example of families just not having these conversations and because because of shame because of fear because of the unknown and that's kind of why you do what you're doing. Exactly. I know my therapist has a lot to say about it. <laughs> she's like, you, she's like, you find, she thinks it's great. She loves my project. She's super supportive. She was at my first gallery show. Um, she has helped me put boundaries in place for the project. She's helped me um, deal with some of the really hard stories that I can't handle emotionally. Like I have to process them with her. Um, but she is also incredibly, um, she's, she's really funny about you, me always needing to help people. Mm-hmm. What does she it's, say about it's that? Key. Well, she's just like, it seems you have found a way to yet again, help people, even though I've been telling you, you need to help yourself, <laughs> 
But my whole thing is by helping people, I'm helping myself. I, I hear you. It's, I mean, I think so many of us in this space kind of come from, you know, having these codependent tendencies around our trauma. And then we, uh, you know, move through that. And we, you know, I think certainly I have the task of, you know, kind of transforming my codependent desperation to save everyone into real service that impacts people with healthy boundaries for everybody. And that is work. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And I think for a while there, I was helicoptering and I helicoptered right after my brother died. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, circling around people, making sure they didn't get sad. And, you know, I just didn't want anybody to get to that place. And it's exhausting. And when I first started my project, the first month I kind of did that with people. I got super invested in their stories and in their aftercare and in their wanting to help them. And what are you doing next? And what's your next plan? And it got exhausting really fast. And my therapist was like, you are bad with boundaries. Like, you need to set some boundaries with this. This is not them. This is you. And so really quickly, I set those boundaries in place. And, you know, all the way down to when I reply to emails, when I reply to Instagram messages because it's it, I get inundated sometimes and I'm the kind of person that if I see people somebody somebody that needs it I'll respond to them immediately but that's taking away from whatever I'm doing and um, I need this to continue to feed me emotionally and so I can't build a resentment for it or um, a burden so so how did you come to that catharsis and put it into place your, your therapist was just like you need some boundaries and you're like, okay, I'll do it. And then it just happened. Yeah. Was there a process? Yeah. I, well, I had one weekend that was pretty rough that I had three different people reach out to me that were not faces that were suicidal, but because they were fans of my project, they immediately related me to the topic and saw me as a, uh, an advocate or a helper and which, I, which all of that is great but it's not who I am and I can't be. And I was at dinner with friends and I'm getting these messages and I'm feeling super stressed out because I'm like, what do I do? I have to respond to these people. What if something happens? And then I reached out to my counselor and she said, but that's not your responsibility. And they know that. And it's in your release and it's in your emails. Like they need to have their own thing. And so she said, I need, I'm going to, try to tell you how to handle this and we'll see if you can do it. She said, I need you to not respond to those messages for at least two days. And it was so hard for me. Like it made me want to vomit. But when I did respond, I apologized. I said I was busy um, with some other life things and that I hope they got help. And I gave them a number for the future that is a suicide hotline. And here's a number you can call. I'm so sorry. I couldn't be there at that moment for you. Um, But I hope that you've found some people closer to you and some phone numbers next time that happens. Um, And it felt pretty good to know that they were all okay. I understand that that might not always happen, but for me, it was really good for me to kind of go through that process and learn. I can't be there for everybody. And what that felt like. I thought it was going to hurt a lot worse than it did. And it didn't. It hurt. Don't get me wrong. It was hard. But I I got over it. I got through it. And processing that is those boundaries are sometimes harder than actually, um, you know, doing living through them. <laughs> so 
I mean, for me, I have been, I started going to 12-step programs where, you know, I first figured out that codependency was a thing and that family dysfunction very specifically makes people want to be kind of obsessive helpers and savers. And um, once I realized that, that was a big, oh my goodness moment because, again, that was a big part of why I ended up so sick was taking on way too much, um, not having any boundaries around work. And when I got sick, I was traveling a lot. I was in, you know, doing projects that involved crime and danger and not sleeping. And right. It was a very physical job doing, you know, the small scale uh, documentary production with a crew of like two or three people running around. And I had no boundaries. Like I wasn't eating, you know, for long periods right. of time. So, you know, whatever, whatever would make my boss happy, whatever would make my other crew members happy, whatever would make, you know, the company happy, I was doing. And then once I realized, okay, if you come from uh, a family with, with dysfunction, you know, alcoholism, drug abuse, there's a, de- you know, one way that people cope with that is becoming, you know, codependent, which, you know, if you don't know what codependent means, it means, yeah. you know, having to help people and save people and, and just being all up in somebody's business. Like you're the, you're the person who can make a difference in their right. lives. And I did that so much. So it has been, I'm still on the train of healing that. I would say I'm 60% there, but I still get the, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta help this, but no one else knows what to do. I'm the only person that knows what to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I, I've done, I, I mean, you say 60%. I'm, I would say I'm everywhere. I'm, I've gotten that boundary with everyone in my life, except for my daughter and my husband. <laughs> and I'm still quite the codependent, very enabler. And, you know, because that's just, it's how I show love is I'm going to fix this for you. And that's just, you know, and I, but I'm learning very fast with them. And um, they're, they're learning to, to say, no, I got this. It's all right. And it's nice. Cause it's like, Oh, wow. Is that an active conversation you have with your husband and your daughter about, you know? Uh, oh, Absolutely. Really? How does that? How yeah, does that, it's, I'm it's fascinated about that. It's interesting because I was always that person to them. You know, I've got these two artistic, eccentric, perfectionist Virgo twins. You know, this husband and daughter that are incredibly hard on themselves and that are really perfectionist and super type A. And so when something happens, usually most of the time something going wrong, they're very at their limit and they're stressed because most of the time things only go wrong when they're stressed because they work things out and they're so good at what they do that they don't make mistakes a lot. So when they do, it's stressful. And so I'm usually the one that swoops in and goes, I got this. This is how we can calm down. This is how we can fix this. And recently, I had learned to pull that back a little bit. And I found this underbelly of them expecting it a little bit. So, you know, my daughter saying, hey, are you going to help me with this? And me going, no, actually, I think you got it. And her kind of sitting there dumbfounded going, "Uh, okay, and not sure about it. And my husband does the same thing. And I just need to kind of say out loud to them, I know you can do this. Like, I'm here if you need anything, but I'm not going to do it for you. And it's great. And and sometimes it takes me to show my mental health issues 
to them a little bit because I think oftentimes I hide it to show strength to help them and what I need. But like during the week of the gallery show, I had my own anxiety attack and my daughter was going through her own thing. And so she came to me kind of traumatized over something. And I, I flat out told her, I said, you know what? I'm having my own stuff with the gallery show right now. I'm so sorry. I can't help you more. Here's some, like, this is what I suggest. Maybe you can deep breathe. Maybe you can, like, write some stuff down that you're thankful for. But that's all I have right now. And it was great. She handled it on her own. She ha- she got it. But I had to kind of stand up for myself and say, I actually need this time for myself you, right now. Have you ever sat down with them and just explained to them how you are and, you know, what you're, how you're trying to heal that and they need to you know, take care of themselves a little bit more than they had in the past. I I would, if they weren't Virgos, I'm not, I don't think I could do that with them. They they would go, duh, we know. And then we, the conversation would be over. No, for me, it's more like, I actually have to, what, what, what goes over best for them is in the heat of the moment. I need to show my vulnerability a little bit. And I don't do that very often. I need to, um, I remember we were all going through a lot. We had a huge kind of family issue going on and both of them were just rattled. And I found myself in the kitchen cooking because that's what I do when I don't know what to do and I'm stressed out. It's very therapeutic. And I found myself cooking and I started talking to myself and I started saying, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. Cooking, cooking. We were having, it was like a race discussion and we had kind of a traumatic neighborhood event around this race discussion. And so um, a bunch of people were over and there was this traumatic episode and I found myself cooking because that's all I could do. And between Ryan and Maddie having their own um, episodes during this, I couldn't handle it anymore. So I literally sat on the floor of the kitchen and started crying. And I said, I need you guys to handle yourselves right now because I cannot handle mine. And they just all like stopped and froze because I think they're used to me flying around the room, helicoptering, taking care of everything. And I couldn't at that moment. And I showed it to them in the hopes that they would take that cue. And they did. And they gathered themselves and my husband was like, I need you to be okay. So I'm going to be okay. Cause I need you to be okay. Cause you're the one that's always okay. And I was like, cool. Glad you know that. <laughs> so yeah, there was no, you didn't have to, he, he is already thinking about that all the time, probably. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, and for folks listening that, you know, depending on where you are in this journey, um, it might sound even, you know, uh, cruel if you have codependent, um, you know, kind of tendencies. Certainly to me, you know, three years ago before I even knew what that meant, I would, you know, in my mind was the idea that, well, it's just my job and I have the ability and the capacity to help everyone. So that's my responsibility. <laughs> right. That, that sounds logical if you, before something has gone really wrong. But now, I, you know, I can really see just how toxic that is. And it's terrible for your relationships. Um, and it it's is so a, bad. It's a process to learn how to do it right. And I am in it with everybody. But, um, you know, you can't, you can't save everybody. It doesn't, even when you try to save everybody, that doesn't help them do what they need to get no, done. No, it just makes it worse. Makes it so much worse. I'm I'm thrilled that 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 you're thinking about this and 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 can share it so so well. 
Well, thanks. I'm it's, it feeds me still. So it's not a burden yet. I've told myself I will quit when it becomes a burden, but, um, it's not, it's not right now. So I'm here for the long haul. The project you mean, or all of it, like, you know, uh, I can help people as long as it doesn't disrupt the help for myself. I can help my family as long as it doesn't disrupt the help for myself. I can be there and speak on my own anxiety, my own enabling, as long as it doesn't disrupt the help of myself. You know what I mean? I think I've got, you got to put your own air mask on first. I was just about to say that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Such a great analogy. Thanks airlines. So if you had to, if looking back at all of these stories and you've heard how many, a hundred now over the last year, Mm -hmm. is that correct? Over a hundred, yeah. Is there a thread that they all have in common between the men, the women, transgender folks, people of different races? Yeah. I mean, if I had to pin it to one thing, I would say um, being... I would say isolation, not being heard. Mm, mm-hmm. I think that that's a thread that everybody, whether they've lost someone, um, whether they've attempted, there's this feeling of isolation and not being heard that is a common thread with everyone. Even the people that have, um, you know, I have a, a few people that have attempted that actually come from great families and have great support systems, but there was one person that didn't hear them that they needed to be heard by, or there was one person that made bullied them or made them feel isolated that they really put a lot of weight on. And that it, that was their tipping point. And who knows, you know, things happen to us when we're really young that we, you know, we think we all, I, I thought I had the greatest family in the world until I started really realizing how families are supposed to work. Right. (laughs) And you don't realize it until you get older. It's funny because when I was in my twenties, I saw my aunts were then in their forties, you know, late thirties and forties. And they had started therapy and they were being very blamey to their parents, my grandparents. And I was like, well, that's really bitchy, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm in my forties and I'm in counseling and I'm seeing that I'm high functioning abuse survivor and I'm like, oh, shit, now I know what they were doing. And it's it's very eye-opening to really kind of... And also, I'm a parent now. So, I see what parenting looks like and what I'm attempting to do. And I see how vastly different it is from my mother. Like, And I grew up with such a toxic mom. And so, you know, having this comparison now and having a lovely relationship with my daughter who loves me, who's my best friend, and I could never say those words about my own mom. That is so eye-opening in the mental health arena for me because it's like, it's validation, it's confirmation, it's really, it's a realization of so many things. So what, what what are you looking to to change, to break, uh, that cycle of trauma with, with your daughter. I'm, I'm doing things that my mom never did. I'm admitting my mistakes to her. I am taking her through my process of, of apologies, of learning, um, and listening to her. And, you know, I, I just pissed her off last night and we got in a fight and she said, these are the things I didn't get from you that I needed from you. And this is why I'm mad. And my response was, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what you needed and I shouldn't have assumed. And my mother would have never done that with me. 
I just should have respected authority. No, right. No, no. <laughs> and so now for me, it's like, I'm so sorry. Thank you for telling me what you needed. I'm so sorry that I didn't respect your boundaries. Like, because we're friends too, at the end of the day, we're best friends. I'm her mom. And, you know, she now is 22 and has her own career and is watching me with this project and telling me, I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, ugh, I would have never been able to look at my mom and say that. You know what I mean? <laughs> because I wasn't proud of anything she did. Mm-hmm. And she, on, on the other hand, was, you know, she was only proud of me in front of friends for, like, status. And so, I'm. We're, we've already broken the standards. We've already broken the the cycle. I'm very proud to say I'm a very different mother than I had. And I've even have grandparents and aunts and uncles that they tell me every time they see me with how you were raised and the mother that you had. It's amazing what you've done with Maddie. Like everybody around me validates it, which is great. When I listened to your interview on KXP a couple months ago, um, you had a quote on that interview that really stuck with me where you were asked, what do you say to a depressed person? Um, and, um, you, you said, well, whatever you do, don't say, I don't tell me what you need help with. And uh, I hate that so much. (laughs) I hate it. I hate it. Like the worst thing you can do is say, call me if you need something. I'm, I'll be right there for you. I want that to be a campaign on a billboard. You know, I don't know how to, to, to boil it down, but that is such a profound and important thing. So why, what, what do you say to a depressed person or what don't you say? I would love for you just to kind of elaborate on, on that um, yeah. for, for all the people who, who aren't patients or are caretakers or just for general information. I think that is one of the most, I think you had an amazing point there. So what, what, what don't you say to a depressed person? Um, well, you know, I think it, it all sparked in me when, when Anthony Bourdain took his own life. Um, there was a lot of outpouring online, a lot of people that were really touched. You know, he was such a hero to so many people and such a great kind of man that traveled the world and lived vicariously. People live vicariously through him. And so, there was a lot of sadness. And so, a lot of people posted about him, posted their sadness, and then said, if you're feeling sad, you're not alone, call me. And that made me so frustrated because Anthony Bourdain had so many friends. He didn't call anyone. And you know why? Because if you had the gumption to call someone, you wouldn't kill yourself. You are not in a place to reach out and fix your own problems. When you're in that place, you need someone else to take that initiative. It's just so important. If I, when I was sad and, and, and really wanted to end my life, I would have called someone if I wanted, if I, if I wanted them to save me, but then I would have just saved myself. You see what I mean? Like there's no, that part of the equation is not there and people don't get it. Like that equal sign. We don't know how to fix it. And if we did, we'd do it for ourselves. And a lot of us who end up suicidal, you know, certainly I think, you know, we have this in common. Like, we don't know how to ask for help without learning. 
you know, if you come from a background or a family where you had to help the parent or there was abuse involved, um, where, you know, you were just reacting to a parent, you learn from a very, very young age, don't ask for help. It's dangerous. So right, exactly. When, when when people say, well, just tell me what you need. I don't understand. Why couldn't they just tell me what they needed? Not everyone has that that toolkit, and it's no. something that takes years to learn. Um, well, in one of the faces in the project, her name's Kenzie. She had a great way of explaining it. She said, if I knew what I needed, don't you think I'd get it for myself? You would. like. And so for me, I tell people, you want to do something? Here is what you do. And I've done this so many times with people. I, you have to watch. Watch with your eyes and listen with your ears. People will show you signs if they need something. A lot of people say, I, I, you wouldn't have known he was sad. Watch closer. Listen closer. Sometimes people become ridiculously calm. Sometimes people become the total opposite and they start really acting out. Sometimes people start giving away their things. Sometimes people... Are, are extra lovey, extra communicative. Sometimes people just drop off the face of the earth in communication. Either way, turn on your intuition. Everybody has it. You just have to hone it. And if you're thinking about somebody or they pop into your head, nine times out of 10, there's a reason they've popped into your head. I don't mean to be witchy and woo-woo here, but it's totally true in my experience. And if I'm thinking about somebody, I'll usually go get myself a coffee. I'll get them a coffee too, their favorite. And I'll just drive by their house and I'll say, Hey, I have a coffee for you. I was just thinking about you. How's it going? And if they're not there, I'll leave it with a note and a flower or whatever. I'll go get a muffin and stop by somebody's work and go, I was just thinking about you. I'll send a stupid gift because now iPhones can send great gifts. (laughs) And I will just send something funny because I'm thinking of them. Sometimes people don't want to go into the depths of their mental health with you in a text conversation. Sometimes they want something to remind them to laugh or something to remind them that they're not alone. So I'll just send a stupid GIF or I'll send something that I saw on Twitter or something. And that is enough to jar somebody. And I think the third thing that I do is, especially around the holidays... I try to make sure people know that they're needed. Um, I think if you feel like the random one out at a holiday party, like, oh, you don't have anywhere to go, come to our house. How shitty does that feel? Like, I'm going to be the only one there that doesn't really fit into that puzzle. How about you tell people, I'm having a bunch of rando people over, and I want you to be one of those randos, and I don't have anybody to bring a pumpkin pie. Will you please bring one? Because I really need one. They have a task. They feel wanted. They feel needed. They are contributing. Like, or, God, I don't know how to make that special kind of mashed potatoes that you do. Can you do that for me? Make them feel like they are wanted for something. And it makes, rather than giving them a handout, like, do you want to come to my house because you don't have anywhere else to go? Well, that feels shitty. Like, nobody wants that. So I think that it's a lot more intricate kind of look into yourself and find out what feels good to you. And that most likely is going to feel good to somebody else. So whatever you do, don't say, tell me what you need. <laughs> find, find Ever. a way, find a way to take initiative and show people that they make an impact in your life and that they're wanted and needed. And that could come from any kind of, 
uh, it could be, you know, there's this movie. You, I know you really like this director. I would love to watch it, and, and give, you could tell me about it afterwards because I'm really right. curious about it. It could be. Uh, or if you do want to put out on social media, you know, call me. Or if you don't have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving, do that. But follow it up. And I think that's the important part that people are missing is I put out on on Facebook, if you don't have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving, please know that my house is open. We have a bunch of people that are all kind of misplants and they're all from all over the country that don't have family here and you're welcome. And then I followed up with people in private message that I know are either estranged from their family, don't have family near, are just kind of by themselves and I did a second round that I said, hey, my message was for real, but I wanted to, you know, reach out to you personally and make sure you have somewhere to go. And some people even said, I actually don't have somewhere to go, but I actually use that day for self-care. And I'm like, great, as long as you have a plan. And they loved the fact that I followed up with them personally, and it wasn't just this mass invite that they felt wasn't personal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my strategy, and I don't know if it's, the way to go. But for me, I just try to be really honest about how I'm doing, which is never awesome on the holidays on social media. So, you know, if people see me on Twitter, I'm like, I try to tell the truth. You know, I don't try to say, you know, here are, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, post listicles about, you know, on from Huffington post about how to get through the holidays. I'm just like, this sucks. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I don't feel good. And then I'm like, okay, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I tell people how it is. I, I hope that, that, that resonates with people because they see others, you know, other people are getting through it and it's not well, and easy. I appreciate so much somebody that will actually, when you ask them how they're doing, will reply honestly. Cause you know, we don't do that very much anymore. I appreciate my therapist so much. Cause when I walk in, I ask her how she's doing And she takes like a good 10 seconds to think about how she's doing and tells me. And it's so refreshing because every time she does it, I realize, oh my God, nobody I know does this. Why? Why don't we do this? Why don't we tell people? So now I use the word fine a lot because fine is super neutral because I'm not always good. I'm not always great. I'm always fine. But... I, I, we need to be okay with sharing words that are truthful rather than just going to make somebody feel okay to move on to the next sentence, you know? And this is kind of the crux of your project is kind of telling the truth about how you are and where you've yeah. been. Um, you know, it, 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 it shows, and, and the fact that we can't do that shows where the, the work is to well, do. Well, yeah, there's so many, you know what? Because we can't, Right, and there's there so many yet. people that can't sit in my uncomfortable posts. So people um, will have, I I posted a face um, of a woman that was pretty viscerally upset recently or a few months ago. And um, it was probably the biggest response I've ever gotten to a post of someone crying. And um, I remember when I caught it, I thought, Oh God, that was, you know, a lot of people come in with tells Um, I know when they're going to start crying. I can tell. I can usually uh, expect it. Um, She didn't. It was very sudden. And it was, she had no reservations about it. She trusted me fully. And it was both frightening and incredibly honoring. Um, But I had a friend the next day message me and go, your post today. 
she said, it's so hard for me to look at. And she said, and it made me realize how important it was to look at it because do you know how many people in society can't look at that? They can't look at somebody animalistically crying because it's too painful. What does, well, that's the reason we have a stigma right there. You can't look at it. You can't feel it. And so every time I post something that's sad, I tell people, because I will always follow it up with something happy. I don't want this project to be a depressing project. That is not my purpose. So I will tell a difficult story. I will show a really sad picture. And then I will say, we're going to sit with her for a second or him. We're going to give them this space. We're going to look at this face, look at these tears. And then tomorrow you get to see how they came out of it. But we have to sit with it first. And my aunt, I had an aunt come up to me and go, I love your project, but sometimes it's just too hard for me to look at. And I'm like, but if you look long enough, you see, I never make you sit there too long. I just make you process it. Like it's, I always will bring you out of it. Trust me with that. It's not about despair. It's about movement. It's about progress. It's about the journey. We're not, yeah, we're not going to gloss over shit in this project. I refuse. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of the crux of of stigma is that we need as a society, as um, you know, we have decided that if you're a valuable person, you don't have to sit with grief. You don't have to sit with trauma. And if you do, you are weak. I don't know. That's that is what we need to think about how we help people do. And I think you have you have found such a beautiful way to um to start that project, to start that process, and to model it for other people like me who are starting mental health projects. And, um, yeah, that's, oh, thank that's, you. that's big, big work. Well, hopefully we can, we can spread it across because there are people, I've got almost 100 people across the country waiting patiently <laughs> for me to come tell their stories. So... Um, and now I have to go through the process of trying to see if I can make this, make it happen with grants and donations and maybe sponsorships. You know, I think getting an airline to sponsor me or a hotel or a camera company or something like that um, to help make, because I don't make, I don't charge people for this. It's just a, it's definitely a nonprofit-ish sort of thing. So, um, but I do, you know, hopefully I'm going to get across the, speaker circuit um at mental health conferences and that will also help pay for um the the project as well and get you some travel so you can go to different places and shoot i would imagine exactly exactly my my thought is that if i can get to these places you know we can kill several birds with one stone even though i hate that reference um analogy but um you know we can go and i can do a pop-up gallery show i can find a studio and do some portraits. I can do a talk, you know, I can do a meetup at a coffee place and just meet people and we can do all of those things um, and knock about in a weekend. So yeah, now it's just the logistics. I think it's easy finding the faces. It's the logistics. Cause I'm a one woman show. I, I get messages all the time from people that going, you guys are all doing a great job. And I'm like, it's just me. Like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but I do all my social media. I do all my emails. 
all the curating, all the photography, all the editing. And so it's a lot. And I used to do it with a full-time job and now I'm trying to make it my full-time job, which um, moving into the speaker circuit and traveling is going to be a lot of work. So I'm probably going to be outsourcing some stuff. <laughs> so, and if, if people want to help you with this, uh, help you get there, how do they do that? You know, I'm telling people now, like the best way people can help is to go to my Patreon. If they want to be like patrons and subscribers and get behind the scenes and follow my process. Um, but I think also the, the great thing to do is I think that this process needs influencers. So many people, you know, suicide crosses, um, economic, racial, all the divides. Um, and so whether it's a celebrity, whether it's a politician, everybody's been touched by this, everybody. And I think that for this project to move, it needs influencers that know about it. And so I'm not the kind of person that's, I'm, I refuse to email Oprah. I refuse to email Ellen. Like I don't, this is not the kind of project that I'm going to sell to somebody. Cause I think that's tacky and I'm not selling people's sadness. It's just not what I do. But I do think that spreading the word organically and getting it in front of people that might like need it for themselves to heal is super important. So I think spreading it organically, getting it in front of influencers and people that might be able to not only help spread the word, but heal themselves. Um, there was a celebrity that came to my, um, my past work that I will not name who I found out while they were there had a connection to suicide and was so touched by my project. However, when asking them to be a face, they were so honest and they said it's been, it, it was just very fresh. It had only happened up like a year before. And I was told I, I need more time, but I really want to be a face, but I need more time to process it. And I had to respect that. And so, but that's the kind of situation I mean that when meeting this person, I had no idea that suicide would have touched their lives. And when they saw my project and got emotional and were touched, it made me realize that that's where I need to push it. I just don't have, you know, we got to find the right people to kind of put their feelers out there. So yeah, donating to my Patreon, spreading the word across influencers and people you might know. And, you know, if you know somebody that works at a camera company, if you know somebody that works at a hotel or an airline, airline, you know, being affiliated with a cause like this warms everybody's heart. It's not controversial like some other causes or nonprofits. Everybody wants to rid the world of suicide. <laughs> like nobody is a get, there's not one, it crosses party lines. You know what I mean? It's not there. There, there's not Republicans are for it, and you know what I mean. It just doesn't happen. So, and if it does, those people should not live on Earth. Well, with what Republicans so. want to do with healthcare, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. True, 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 true. Touche. Go down that rabbit but, hole. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different podcast. But, but seriously, like you know, there's it's so. Um, it looks so good for companies to align with something like this as well for media purposes. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. But again, I'm trying to be so careful. I refuse to profit off it. I refuse to um, try to sell it and like, uh, you know, 
pitch it to people. It just feels super icky. So, um, but it does need to pay for itself if it's going to keep going. Cause my poor husband, we can't, sure. <laughs> we can't fund this for too long, sure. too much longer. Mm-hmm. And up till now we've paid for two gallery shows and, you know, I'm using a 10 year old camera still. And so all of that, you know, it's, it definitely is going to need to, to make a shift here to be, um, to have some longevity. Uh, well, um, what, what is the link? I'll link all of your links, obviously, and everywhere that, uh, this, um, um, episode, uh, lives, but, uh, just where, how do people find you? It's faces, it's Patreon faces of fortitude. Yeah. Patreon is faces of fortitude. And then Instagram is faces of fortitude. Facebook is faces of fortitude portraits because some, Makeup artist has the other one and she never posts and it makes me mad, whatever. And <laughs> Twitter is actually my name, but you, if you search Faces of Fortitude, it comes up as my name. Um, and then I do have a website that's under, it's up there, but it, we're, it, it has a little construction still happening, but it's facesoffortitude.com. I did get that URL. I was so happy. Congre- uh, congratulations on the domain. Thank you. Um. <laughs> that was a big deal. I was so and, thrilled. Uh, <laughs> And and just wrapping up a final question, um, if you had uh, if you had a mess uh, one message to tell somebody who's really struggling with depression today, what would you tell them? We talked about you know a little bit about what to tell the caretakers or friends or families, but if you could speak directly to somebody, um, you know, because there there are people who are listening right now who, you know are thinking about not sticking around. What, what would you, what would you tell them? I get this question often actually in my inbox and I, I have to tell the exact same thing every time. Um, what you're feeling is so hard and it's so valid and it's so real and most people don't get it and it sucks and they're assholes. But in 10 minutes, in 15 minutes, in 30 minutes, you're going to feel differently. And if you need help feeling differently, there are so many things you can do that are so easy. Go get a glass, put a bunch of ice in it, put some water in it, take your socks off, take your shoes off, stand by the window, shut your eyes, put both hands around the glass, feel your hands getting cold, then feel your arms chilling up a little bit and the goosebumps coming on and all of a sudden your body temperature is changing and you hear a bird outside and you open your eyes, you're getting out of your head, you're feeling different things. You feel differently in that second. And that's how fast your feelings can change. And that's how fast you can change. If you just wait and listen to yourself and get out of your head for a minute, it's not going to be forever. It's not going to get easier you're just going to get stronger. And for more ideas, you can keep listening to this podcast and figuring out how to get help and different ways to change how you're feeling, process your feelings, and move through your feelings. Um, There are so many ways to do that. You are right, and that is what this podcast is all about. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to say? Anything that's left uh, unsaid? No, I think that's it. I'm. Uh, thank you for being a face in my project. Thanks for letting me come onto your podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I appreciate so much the work you you are doing. Um, I 
I can't, I, I don't have the words to express uh, really what this work means to me and how inspired I am and to have somebody local here in Seattle, um, you know, with, with similar thoughts from different, um, you know, similar goals from different um, perspectives and ways of going about it um, is super exciting to me. And um, I just, I know you're making a difference. Well, I mean, our paths crossed for a reason. Exactly. So I'm definitely, I've had a few people come to me saying, are you going to do a documentary? I'm like, I already have a director in mind. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Just I, putting that out there. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm down. I'm, uh, I've, it's, I've, I've already started to see a trailer in my head, to be honest with you. So, um, but we can talk about that yeah. another time. I have people ask me all the damn time and I'm like, nope, it's already, t- that job's already taken. Uh, he doesn't know it yet, but it's already taken. <laughs> you're too sweet. All right, let's do it. Let's talk about it. Um, Okay, cool. Mary Angela, thanks so much for being a guest. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Mental Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us over at mentalhealthmedia.org, where you can make a tax-deductible contribution and sign up for our mailing list and all of our socials. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts to help other people find it. Special thanks to Tamara Broadhead and Patrick Mohan, who helped bring you this episode today. And as always, do not change any part of your treatment plan or delay in getting care based on any content on the podcast or on mentalhealthmedia.org. Nothing on the podcast is intended to be medical advice or medical care. If you have questions about your mental health or any health treatment, please consult your mental health professional. Until next time, I'm Jesse Zookman. You can find me on Twitter where I'll be posting just about every day um, about mental health, uh, new studies, my own healing path, and, uh, and I'll be retweeting you know, the coolest patients in the Twitterverse if I do say so myself. Uh, with all that said, thank you sincerely for supporting us and for tuning in. All of your love and energy is appreciated. And until next time, Zygesund.